0: Welcome to another episode of the Augmented Podcast. Augmented brings industrial conversations that matter, serving up the most relevant conversations on industrial tech. Our vision is a world where technology will restore the agility of frontline workers. We serve an audience of executives, industrial leaders, investors, founders, educators, technologists, academics, process engineers, and shop floor operators across the emerging field of frontline operations. In episode 71 of the podcast, the topic is trends in the manufacturing software market, and our guest is Ralph Verilli, Managing Director of Madison Park Group. In this conversation, we talk about his notion of Industry 5.0, emphasizing how manufacturing integrates with humans, including human-robot collaboration and true collaboration between humans and machines, and increased emphasis on personalized production and supply chain resiliency. Augmented is a podcast for industrial leaders, hosted by futurist Tron Unheim, presented by Tulip. Ralph, how are you?
1: I'm well, Tron. How about yourself?
0: I'm doing great. I'm excited about this conversation. The yeah. software market and your deep experience in it in the manufacturing space. It's a thriving area that not everybody really understands. So my question to you is: you know, how did you get into this business? I know a little bit about you, Ralph, right? So well. engineering degree. UMass Amherst, yeah. right? A uh, little bit of music in there.
1: <laughs> yeah. On the exactly. side,
0: right? You're a drummer, right?
1: I am. I am. Maybe, maybe I'll give you a little background. So, uh, you know, I actually grew up in New York, I grew up in the Bronx, and, and I had visions of being a drummer, a musician, and my Italian father put a stop to that very, very early. And I always liked mechanical things and my father and I would spend a lot of time working on things around the house and I liked mechanical things and, you know, decided that I want to become a mechanical engineer and went to, as you mentioned, the University of Massachusetts, got my undergraduate degree in mechanical engineering, specializing in manufacturing, basically how you put things together. And then I stayed and got my graduate degree as well in mechanical engineering, but I specialized in artificial intelligence. And this was in 1987, so as I like to say, that's before artificial intelligence was really cool, like it is today. So, you know, educational background, mechanical engineering, and and software.
0: Well, that's interesting. You specialize in AI. There's been so many waves of AI. What were you guys doing back then?
1: So it's pretty interesting. We were at the forefront of it. Believe it or not, at the time, UMass was actually the leading one of the leading universities in artificial intelligence. And what we had done, my group in the mechanical engineering department, was trying to take artificial intelligence techniques and apply them to mechanical design. So how do you get software to reason about the design trade-offs that have to be made? You know, so to be honest with you, compared to where it is now is very rudimentary at the time. But it was really cool stuff. And and we were really, at that time, really transforming how software was being applied to the design of parts.
0: You know, it's interesting what you just said. It, It felt very exciting and it was leading at the time, but then it's rudimentary in a historical perspective. Do you think it's always like that? Because it's hard to put yourself in the position of being in 1989 and saying, well, actually, it was groundbreaking. Some things, though, they remain groundbreaking. But I guess in AI processing power and the, uh, everything about it just feels different, right?
1: Yeah, without a doubt. I, mean, I remember having these theoretical conversations late night in the lab about, you know, when is when is artificial intelligence going to be able to get even close to what humans can do? You know, never realizing 30 years ago that we'd be anywhere close to where we are now. And, and I remember having a conversation with my research colleagues in a bar Saying, you know, it's going to be forever until a, a robot's going to be able to balance a glass of water, you know, yet we're there and then some. So, really, we've made unbelievable strides.
0: Yes. Uh, you can see it from both sides, though. You can say, "Well, 1989, you know, long time ago." You can now balance the glass, but you can't do much more. Arguably, right? So that, there's, there's, you can see it from both sides. I, I just love that. Anyway, Ralph. So let's start poking into this because there, there's an immediate context here, and we'll talk about what you do for a living now in, in sort of, in private equity. But your group wrote a report, and you keep tracking, obviously, the trends in the area. You, you wrote something in September called the Manufacturing Software Market Top Trends. It's a market update. So we'll cover some of the stuff you, you wrote about there, because it's been an interesting year for manufacturing yeah, very tech. Very yeah, very. But maybe just first, let's cover this. So you work at Madison Park Group now, advising right. founder-owned and also sort of private equity-backed companies in yeah. broadly engineering and software What does that space look like, just quickly, before we get into the meat of the matter?
1: Sure. So maybe I should take even a little bit of a step back. You know, I'm very fortunate in that, you know, over my career, I've worked for a number of engineering software companies. I worked at computer vision. I worked at an artificial intelligence company for engineering. I then started a company with one of my research colleagues that specialized in design and manufacturing simulation tools for the aerospace world. We focus on carbon fiber. Carbon fiber is a very lightweight, high-strength material that was really sort of coming into prevalence, into mass use in, let's call it the early 2000s. Carbon fiber used to design all fighter aircraft, submarines, Formula One race cars. So we started a company in 1992, 1993 – and ran it for about 17 years. We sold to the Airbuses of the world, the Northrop Grumman's, uh, the Elenia's, all the Formula One guys. And you know, we, we took it from two guys in a room to about 100 employees worldwide, and it was really a lot of fun. And I, so I got a lot of experience in working with aerospace companies and, and developing software. Uh, we were acquired by Siemens in 2011. And I helped run it for a couple of years, and that was fun. But fundamentally, I'm a small company guy, and I really like engineering and manufacturing. So I was looking for ways to sort of get back into really working in true engineering and manufacturing software. I started to work with the Madison Park Group, which is an investment bank based out of New York. I'm based out of Boston. But what they wanted to do was start to help engineering and manufacturing software companies realize their value. Meaning there are all these companies in the space that have great technology that eventually might want to get acquired, but don't really know how to go about doing it. So I came in and started to work with them and we built a worldwide practice where we primarily work with founder owned companies. I'd say 60 percent of our clients are founder owned or run by founders in the engineering manufacturing software world. So we don't do manufacturing companies. We only work in the world of software. So I spent 80% of my time doing that, but I also spend 20% of my time working with early stage companies on strategy and execution, which is what I really love doing. It's really a lot of fun working with these small companies in engineering, manufacturing and robotics, but I can provide a lot of value based on my operating experience to these other companies as they're trying to get acquired. So primarily that's how I split my time. And Madison Park Group is the mergers and acquisitions firm that we do the M&A with.
0: Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I've learned so much over the last few months, basically, about this space, uh, both interviewing people and, and, you know, where I work now. One of the things that strikes me is the complexities of building software in a physical world. Uh, they are immense. So I can yeah. imagine that the advantage of having tried to do so and successfully done so a few times is quite interesting when you're assessing what's possible now. So yeah. even though the tools might change from, you know, 80s, 90s, 2000s, right? Things do change, but there are certain things that don't really change that fast. So maybe you can kind of line up a little bit the space. When you say manufacturing software and you make a distinction, you're not working with manufacturers. That sounds intuitively like I, I think I understand what that means. But what does even manufacturing software mean? Because we're talking about a sector manufacturing, that's not really a sector. It's basically everybody that makes things is a manufacturer. So now software could be anything.
1: Yeah, so companies make things. You're making a, a fighter jet, you're making a table, you're making a chair. They have to be made. They get designed, but then these things have to be made. right? And whether you're custom manufacturing things or you're buying components to assemble things, it's typically a complex process. And people, I always, you know, my my family jokes because I'm always like, oh, I wonder how that's made. And my my family is like, you know, you're such a geek. But, you know, the complexity in making things is really interesting. And things have become so complex that being able to manage manufacturing without software, whether that's to manage the process, to manage the logistics, to manage the machines, is virtually impossible. But I think it's worthwhile to take a step back. And as you mentioned, you know, manufacturing is a big area. There are a number of different types of manufacturing, right? You have mass customization, right, or mass manufacturing. You're making, for example, bottles, chairs, light bulbs. These are things that don't change. You're cranking out hundreds of thousands, millions of them. You then have semi-custom manufacturing. Think about an automobile, right? An automobile, you know, changes colors. They change the types of seats. You change engines. It's not a, a ground up design. And not everything is not completely different, but there is variation on it. Then you have what we call complex large scale. Those are things like fighter jets. Those are things like submarines, nuclear reactors, you know, things that take a long multiple years to manufacture and things are constantly changing. And then the other area that's sort of under the radar, people don't think about is what's known as process manufacturing. That's where you're manufacturing things like cosmetics or food. Basically, it's, it's some type of process that typically involves chemicals you know, and, and liquids. So you, know, you have these different areas, and what we're finding is that different manufacturers want different types of software to help them manage the process. So typically, during the process, things will change. You, you have to source certain materials. You'll have materials that you, know, you don't have anymore. There's lots of things to keep track of, and typically you need software to be able to do that.
0: So is that the bulk, would you say, of the software it starts out with trying to keep track of this material, the flows of material that has to come into the production process?
1: Material is certainly one aspect of it. You can think about compliance. You know, if you're making something and you know you have to make a change to it, well, that has all sorts of ramifications. So let's say that during a manufacturing process I have, to, I have some type change. How does that ripple through into compliance aspects, into inspection aspects, into shipping? So again, one what we always say is one small change at the beginning of a manufacturing process has a great ripple effect.
0: So if you were to classify the different software tools that operate in this industry, are they for you grouped by the distinctions you just made between mass production, custom, and sort of process uh, manufacturing? Or do sometimes the tools cater to all of the above?
1: We're seeing more and more that they're catering to specific types of manufacturing, and even in situations, certain types of domains. But again, I think if you take a step back, across the board of manufacturing, we're seeing some very interesting and common themes right, the ability to predict cost and predict the manufacturability of something, right? You have to remember that engineers go off and design something and then it goes to manufacturing engineers and the design engineers don't always know if the manufacturing guys can really make it. So, you know, being able to assess whether something's manufacturable early in the process is really important and what that's going to cost. Yeah. The other idea of being able to do predictive quality, you know, I'm, I'm doing this batch run of things. Well, what's the quality going to be? Right? I, I'd like to not have to test every hundred bottles that come off of something based on what's going on on the manufacturing floor. Can I predict what my quality might be? We're seeing a lot of things about shop floor analytics. There are all these manufacturing machines pulling data off machines to improve efficiency, to improve timing. Things like that are sort of interesting. We're seeing a lot these days on employee or worker and robot interaction, right? Everyone's hearing you can't get enough workers, so now companies are saying, "Well, we can either completely run things with robots, but it might some things are better if we combine robots and machines." So we, you know, robot human interaction is becoming really interesting.
0: Yeah. In in your report, you talk about this as industry 5.0. And there, you know, there are all these notions of four and five. And there's even some people in Finland now talking about 6.0. But for you, I don't know where you kind of picked up the idea that the robot integration with humans is the 5.0 for you. But what does it really mean? Because there are many distinctions in that area, right? So cobots, you know, robots that actually have some sort of interaction interface, they're not dangerous, you know, that's the first problem. But then more kind of advanced sensors, I guess, generally, and also more sophistication, perhaps, and interfaces on the human side so they can kind of control these robots. What are some of the companies that come into mind for you uh, over the last year that exemplify this industry 5.0?
1: Yeah, so what's interesting about it is, you know, on the robot thing, we found or the industry has found that that if you're doing mass customization, you do it all with robots. And there are certain things that, believe it or not, are still better done by humans. Well, what's the right optimization between the two? And robots can still, you know, in certain cases, only pick up certain types of things and move them and place them in certain areas. Sometimes you need a human to do it. Um, There's a company out there right now called Pickle, right now that's really focusing on human and robot interaction. Let the robot do part of it, let the human do part of it. We're seeing less and less safety concerns to be honest with you, right? You're not gonna put a human into this robot cell where you've got this big 200 pound arm moving across. It's more the finesse part of assembling things. And then even in cases where you might have something semi-custom that you're putting together where you can't program the robot to do it, how do you get the robot to do the standard part? the non-custom part, and then have the human put in the parts that are somewhat custom.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a huge focus on this podcast, obviously, these distinctions between kind of industrial automation approaches and then what we would call more advanced kind of augmentation approaches where you, you're you sort of taking more into account exactly what you're saying what are the optimal activities that right. humans should be doing at this yes. point and 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 robots and and these things i'm assuming you know will will be changing so that's part of the game for you is to figure out what is the market ready for and what is actually possible
1: yeah exactly the number of interesting companies that we're seeing right now is just unbelievable and and again you need to remember going back to what i said i spent 80% of my time helping established companies either ready to get equity Or get acquired. What's really fun is that I get to see the entire spectrum because my work with some early stage companies. And, you know, you really get to see some early stage companies doing things that are just really, really cool, you know, knowing that eventually it's going to get to the mass market and that's going to be in a couple of years.
0: Well, I wanted to ask you a little on the financial side too. I want to go back to some of the companies, but before that, so private equity isn't necessarily known for going in early stage, but as you're pointing out, well, certainly there's been mid-market private equity for a while, but in manufacturing, these things tended to just be that you pick up some older firm that wasn't perhaps growing, and then you kind of shake it up and, and make it grow. But you're seeing now private equity becoming interested in manufacturing also at earlier stages and and even so just more interested than they were before. Comment about this trend. When did it happen? Who are sort of the actors that are active? And and what exactly is it that you're seeing early? Because that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. It actually, it blurs the picture that you have in your head of, Right. which financial actor is active at given stages, right? Private equity is not something you assume you're dabbling in, investing in a garage and, and some guys. Yeah. and.
1: So, you know, what we're seeing, manufacturing has started to become cool, right? Supply chain is starting to become cool, right? The whole COVID situation has really made people realize that you have to start to think about manufacturing closer to home, start to really worry about the entire supply chain. So COVID was a great accelerator. And one thing we should touch on at some point is sort of COVID and driving the idea of manufacturing software as a service, but we can come back to that. But going to your question, across the board, we're seeing the lines blur now between traditional private equity and the early stage venture guys. There are certain funds that are certainly gonna focus on, you know, very well, big established companies and certain funds that are gonna focus on the two guys in the garage. But you're 100% right. Everything's becoming blurred.
0: Even family offices, arguably. I've been seeing some LinkedIn activity, very sort of bullish people from that industry saying, hey, VC guys, keep watching. We're more patient. We have more money. We're getting smarter. We're coming for you.
1: Right. Yeah. And and that's regardless of the industry. You're 100% right. In the manufacturing world, everyone's trying to get into it right now. It's just such a hot space. And there's so many places that you can sort of interject yourself. You can do traditional manufacturing, but in the software world, again, there are so many different interesting points, whether it's shop floor analytics, whether it's predictive costing, you know, whether it's sourcing, there's just so many areas that you can interject yourself. When we work with our clients, they might have inbound offers from someone saying, hey, someone wants to acquire us or, hey, we've been doing this for five or six, seven years. We think now is the right time to look at some exit options. We have a number of firms and again, the universe of private equity firms is extremely big, but we like to work with companies that have a thesis around it. Meaning, do you have conviction for it? Do you have passion for it? Do you typically work 60% with founder-owned companies? These are people that have spent their careers building this company. The money, believe it or not, is secondary. They wanna find the right home for their products and their technology. And that's where we spend a lot of time. Based on what we know about the ecosystem, Who would truly value what these people do and how they do it? But again, you know, we're seeing big investments in early stage companies. I mean, it's just unbelievable what we're seeing, you know, companies like Tulip, companies like Paperless Parts, you know, just getting significant investment from big, whether it's venture, private equity, you know, however you want to distinguish. But the investment community as a whole has really Taking a liking to manufacturing.
0: And one of the interesting things about that, Ralph, to me at least, is that the complexities haven't necessarily gone away, right? It's still hard to grow a business. Even if you're not yourself making products, you are selling software to people who are. Yes. So it's not as easy as just throwing in some good algorithms, right? Because you're actually trying to help people improve the efficiency of their process. It's not just about your process, your wonderful product. It has to really work in this material flow that we were talking about earlier.
1: Right. Nothing is standalone anymore, Tron. Nothing is standalone, right? You need to integrate, take data from, send data to a lot of different products. There's no one company that is really doing it end-to-end. And some of the big guys sort of try You know, you think about the Siemens of the world and and, and companies like that, and they might have okay solutions across the entire spectrum, but they don't have best in class solutions, which is what we're seeing drive some of the acquisition interest.
0: I was going to ask you about that because, of course, if you are a traditional industrial company that with ambitions on technology, you're going to try to gun for controlling the process, right? Right. And of course, the ideal situation for any startup is, you know, is also to do that. You capture all the value, you're not giving money away and uh, leaving anything on the table. But why is it that this has been so complex? I mean, this is your space, right? The acquisition game is about sort of complementing your kind of innovation portfolio. And and yep. I guess you sometimes rely on that for the exits for these companies. Why is it that the likes of, you know, and Siemens is just one example, there are many of these sort of industrial giants ge another one right they have gotten trouble like you said getting best in class all across the board is the complexity just too much or is it the integration of the different pieces that they buy that may at some point be excellent but the moment you put it into your portfolio the integration of it is too complex to get the value out of it what what is the reason why this is not seems happening
1: we have a lot of data on this in the engineering software world And we're seeing the same thing transfer over to manufacturing. We're seeing companies want what we call domain-specific tools. They want software that works for their problems. They don't want to take general software and try and apply it to what they're doing. So we call these domain-specific tools. And to do something domain-specific, meaning you know shop floor analytics for example you really need to delve deep you really need to understand the domain understand the problem and the bigger companies are traditionally you know they're they're not going in deep they're trying to be something to everyone and that's why we're seeing the acquisition interest you have these companies you know for instance doing you know no code applications for manufacturing cost estimation they know that really deeply it's a critical part of the process And the big companies are never going to have the interest to spend the time to go deep because it's too niche for them.
0: Talk to me more about no-code platforms. Obviously, Tulip is a no-code for manufacturing platform, so we do spend some time there. You highlighted no-code in your report as an interesting concept. No-code has been part of sort of general software for a little while. Is there any chance in your mind that these very generic software platforms can or are moving into manufacturing, or are you seeing more custom sort of manufacturing no-code?
1: So just to set the stage, right, no-code typically means developing a software application by configuring it, you know, dragging things, configuring a specific application. There are definitely no-code platforms out there that try and be anything and everything to people. But the no-code platforms we're seeing that are successful, like Tulip, are focused on a specific area, at least for now. Because you're sort of more configuring, or you know the domain in which you're working, right? You know that, okay, I'm going to develop this application, but it's in the world of shop floor analytics. It's in the world of sourcing. It's in the world of quality. So right now, the no-code, low-code applications that we're seeing are certainly that are successful, are within certain areas that's in general now eventually will you get there yeah i mean there's certainly a bunch of no-code platforms out there that can do anything and everything but they typically work in very generic business processes and i you know not to disparage them but you know the world of manufacturing the world of engineering the world of analytics you know machine shop analytics is pretty complex
0: So let's do some cuts then into this, because obviously there are separate industries that have sometimes their own kind of software players that historically are there. And then there are some startups that are moving industry by industry, right? So there's no code applications for specific industries or low code applications for specific industries. And then others again say, no, it's the problem specific focus that's going to be my thing. So there are uh, software firms now for like asset intensive industries, I guess, and they focus a lot on kind of digital twin type technology and mm. you know a lot of buzzwords here, but you focus quite a bit on engineering and engineering analysis. Can you map out that space a little bit for us and, and how that's relevant for how to think about the sector overall? Because engineering is one of these things that people think they understand, but when, when you start to say engineering software, that's already kind of a misnomer right there because it gets complicated. You're now talking a profession matched with the technology. So you get into kind of this, I guess, complexity of you know, the information technology space plus the operational challenges. That gets pretty hairy.
1: It is, but again, it goes back to what I was saying before, right? I have this saying, if I'm a plumber, I need the tools that allow me to fix pipes and do right. my job, right? If I'm an electrician, I need the tools that allow me to run wires and put in lights you know, there's a little bit of overlap in tool, but those professions want tools that help them do their job. We're seeing the same thing in engineering. Again, going back to this concept of domain-specific tools. If I'm designing a carbon fiber part, I want a tool that allows me to design a carbon fiber part. Companies are going away from, you know, generic CAD systems and saying, okay, you know, I'm going to allow you to design anything and everything. Well, you need that, but you also need tools to help you do specific types of processes specific types of design and that's where again coming back to these smaller companies that focus on things are getting great valuations right and again you you just map it to manufacturing the sets of tools that manufacturing software that automakers use is different than the manufacturing tools needed to design an aircraft you know it's just different so that's what we're seeing And then again, you know, I did want to bring this back, you know, one of the biggest things that we've seen is this transition to SaaS, software as a service, and manufacturing and engineering companies, right? The big companies, the Lockheed's, the Airbus, they always had software on-premise, right? They wanted to manage it. They never wanted to allow their designs outside of their enterprise. With COVID and no one being able to go to the office or being able to share things and no one being able to travel, You know, the ability to access software and designs remotely has become critical. And now all of a sudden, SaaS has really taken off in the world of both engineering and manufacturing. COVID has just been a boom for that type of software in that industry.
0: Yeah, so I would agree with you. But but it is a completely separate business model. And it does have quite some effects on a company that just says they're going to go SaaS. Like, what if they have invested in an on-prem platform that doesn't even provide it? Then the vendors are scrambling to put a SaaS layer on top of an on-prem solution. I mean, these are mission-critical systems in actual factories where like downtime of 20 minutes during the day is a big issue.
1: Yeah. So it has been a scramble. And your example is very good. You look at companies like PTC or Autodesk that traditionally have only had on-premise solutions they have focused on SaaS. To get new functionality, we need to get a way to get a SaaS platform out there. And it's been difficult, right? A lot of these companies, again, going back to the big aerospace manufacturers or any type of manufacturer, typically always use their software on-premise and they've invested all this money. So the software manufacturers, whether it's for engineering or manufacturing, have had to develop a product and get the customers to convert over. And in many cases, it hasn't been easy until COVID. All of a sudden, COVID, it's supposed to companies saying, I don't want to do it, I don't want to do it. Now they're saying, I need it, I need it, I need it. So that's been good for the software industry. But you know, again, you can go into the financials, you take a revenue hit on it and things like that, probably not appropriate for this, but there are a lot of challenges for the software companies in this world. But it appears that they're, they're all getting there
0: yes so that's interesting the software companies seem to be finding opportunities but i'm interested in the manufacturing factories as such one of the things that struck me looking into this is even bigger firms that you would think have made the transition already either to SaaS already or you know to some sort of cloud solution and maybe to advance kind of worker tools and predictive maintenance that have a lot of those buzzwords covered they have systems But then you look at the fact that they make acquisitions and also they make specialty parts sometimes and have smaller facilities. There's just this discrepancy across the manufacturing portfolio of almost every large company where they have these outperforming big places where they can maybe install new systems and can afford to take the costs of of making all those transitions. And then you have simultaneously either their own factories that are smaller and can take those costs, or you have the enormous challenge of the supplier networks, right? It's not just you, right? You got to, in some way, upgrade your entire support structure.
1: Right. And no easy task by any means, right? And as you're alluding to. And listen, you know, let's not say that the whole world has gone to SaaS. There's still a tremendous amount of perpetual and on-premise licenses or, you know, usage out there in the world. But you hit on an interesting thing is that all these OEMs are looking for a way to get more visibility into their supply chain. And if they want to do that, they're recognizing that they all have to be on a common software platform. And the only way to really do that is to move to this SaaS or cloud-based model. So there are complexities, but I think, you know, the ability to look into your supply chain is also driving the need to go to SaaS or like what we call cloud-based. I think one point, you know, we've really spoken about, you know, the larger manufacturers, you know, we need to remember that in the United States, there are so many very, very small manufacturers. You know, I call them Joe's machine shop that's designing bolts, you know, someone that's designing or manufacturing parts for a Boeing airplane, you know, part of a landing gear. There are hundreds of thousands of small manufacturers and now there are companies that are starting to try and cater to those guys right forget the Lockheed's of the world how do we go and really help companies on the smaller side of manufacturing achieve efficiencies through software that's sort of becoming a really interesting space as well
0: well but it ties into the business model right because if the business model of the provider Even if it shifts from on-premise to software as a service, if you're still charging an enormous license fee, you know, as an install cost, you know, and you see this game played, people are trying to get it both ways. They're like, yeah, we're software as a service, except it's a million dollars to get started. And then we can start to do some monthlies in addition. (laughs) Right. So now you're getting both.
1: Yeah, well, they're not getting both. (laughs) Well, they're trying to, yeah. They're trying to, but they're not getting both. It's interesting. You're 100% right. The purchases of software have sort of wised up and saying, listen, we only want to pay for what we use. We're not going to buy all this software and let it sit on the shelf. And we don't want this upfront cost. So they're getting pretty smart, right? The Salesforce model has changed the world. It's now coming around to engineering and manufacturing. But again, you bring up a good point. If you look at some of the big software providers, whether it's the SOS of the world, the ANSYS of the world, certainly PTC and Autodesk, as they go through this transition from perpetual on-premise, where, as you say, you get a couple of million dollars up front to getting something on an annual or monthly fee, you're going to take a revenue hit. And you have to be smart as the way you work through that. And, you know, we call it the trough, right? You're going to have to go through the trough to get to the good part on the other side. And a lot of big ones are doing it and a lot of small ones are starting to catch up, but you're 100% right, right? They're they're not getting it both ways anymore.
0: Talk to me about the industrial engineer of the future, because it strikes me that some of the things that you're talking about here, they take a long time to fully understand. It's not like, oh, wow, there's cloud, uh, I get it. And then every engineer is suddenly wired for cloud and has it all figured out. What are the challenges both within the industry and to the providers who are trying to sell new types of solutions in terms of grasping what it actually is to be an engineer in this evolving market? I mean, none of the engineers on the shop floor were educated for software even in the first place. They might have had a little software course, but whatever yes. software course they had is not the software we're seeing now. Yeah. So yeah, okay, I get it. The interfaces are getting simpler, you know, so they say and there's low code or no code, but there are skills involved. How does that play out?
1: Yeah, so it's a very, very good question because you know we see engineers, manufacturing engineers, everyone's becoming specialized. And we say that because products are becoming more and more complex, right? 20 years ago even, right, you didn't have all these electronics in software. You didn't have electronics controlling mechanical components. And think about it, right? You introduced electronics. Well, now you have a a heat problem, right? You have a vibration problem that you need to manage. We're seeing engineers become more and more specialized. Again, going back to that, and as such, they want tools because they don't want to take a generic product and figure out how I'm going to apply this to my specific problem. They're wanting specific tools that help them manage their process, their product. Companies are looking for engineers that can go really deep in certain areas. So, I'm not sure it exactly answers your question, but that's certainly a trend that we're seeing. And again, I go back to you, I think about even just 20 years ago. You know, you didn't have all these electronics in cars like you do now, electronics in machines. You know, what does electronics now require? Batteries? It requires more heat analysis. You know, things are becoming more complex.
0: Yeah, I guess I'm talking about both the workforce retraining challenge of trying to get engineers feel confident about the opportunities that are forthcoming with the SaaS world basically on these new systems, even just like staying up to date on that. And then the question of, if you think about the schools, the universities, and even the colleges that are educating engineers and, and technicians. So, you know, at lower levels, what should they be doing to prepare for this? Because it's so evolving.
1: Yeah, you know, I I can't say that I've given it a tremendous amount of thought, to be honest with you. I will tell you that after spending seven years in engineering school, you end up spending a lot of time on a lot of theoretical things. And I personally believe that engineering school and getting people prepared don't address a lot of the practical things that you're going to encounter. And some might say, Listen, you're gonna learn that on the job. But I think that's sort of hard. So you know, I think almost every school at some level is bringing software in for design and analysis, right? That's been happening. But, you know, really, you know, how do you use this on real world problems, I think is a challenge that we've yet to sort of see. But I think taking a step back again, going back that the real world is becoming more and more complex, this idea of how do you train engineers for multidisciplinary design? How do you train engineers that things are not just going to be mechanical? Things are not just going to be electronic. You have to sort of bring all of these things together. I think that's something that we should spend more time thinking about.
0: Yeah. So that's, I guess, why I was trying to use the term industrial engineer, because you have to make sure the system works. Like you said, it, it doesn't matter. You are trained as an electrical engineer. If, <laughs> if there's more than electronics needed, you're in trouble. One challenge that you did highlight in this report under the bracket of industry 5.0 was the energy efficiency and sustainability challenges. That would seem to be an area for sure yep. where it's a little bit unclear... What exactly is going to make a dent and who, who has the skill really there to make a difference? What are you seeing in this area? Are there specific startups that are attacking kind of eco-efficiency and manufacturing tech that you're looking at? Or yeah. is it just something that you highlighted as something that we all have to get better on and you'd wish someone brought a deal to you that yeah. looked like that?
1: Yeah. So we certainly highlighted, as you said in our report, as a trend that needs to be addressed. But we're actually starting to see, and again, this is, these are early stage companies that we're starting to see companies that will track carbon emissions or, you know, the carbon footprint from a factory, which is really interesting, right? I mean, no one years ago was speaking about this, right? How do I track the carbon footprint of a factory, right? That's going to be important. I'm not really sure anyone really knows how to do that, but we're starting to see software companies do it. But we're trying to do it.
0: Well, so that's my point, right? In this stage where there are so many approaches and it's not clear how and whether it will be regulated, what the approaches might be, no one seems to really have the kind of silver bullet yet. How do you play that market? We might everyone think right now that it's important, but we're going through this experimental phase where we don't know what's going to pan out.
1: That's an area that is just so early stage and you're right, there's no silver bullet. I think the small companies are starting to see that there's a problem here, right? The startups, right, which we love, saying, hey, there's a problem there. How do we go solve it? Let's go learn what the real problem is and try and get ahead of a solution. That's probably the best I can do for you in, in that one. But I think it's going to be driven by those startups and the guys that are really looking ahead two, three, four, ten 10 years that are going to solve that one.
0: Let me just hit on one last thing. Uh, again, that was part of your report. You talked about sort of simulation technologies, digital yeah. twin being one of them. When I am used to thinking about digital twins, I think about some sort of fairly complicated industrial asset, whether it's a yeah. boat or a reactor or some of these that you mentioned in this sort of category up here of uh, you know, more complex manufacturing, complex yeah. goods. But the way this field is going we are starting to see the possibility of modeling more larger systems, not just the thing, you know however yeah. complicated the thing is, but people are starting to and you know, to this sustainability challenge, that's yeah. essentially what this would require, right? You, you're not just measuring carbon in and out, you have to have a simulation of not just the thing, but the system around it. What does that look like? So this digital systems dynamics,
1: yeah. essentially. Yeah, so you know, you probably know this this concept of this wording of digital twin gets thrown around so much. Right. It's really incredible. And you know, fundamentally, what you're trying to do is you design something electronically, you manufacture it, and then you put it in the field, and basically it's a twin. The thing in the field is a twin of what got designed. Rarely is that the case because changes happen in manufacturing, changes happen in the field, but typically you get close enough, right? So if you can censor it, You can do predictive analytics, predictive maintenance and things like that. But you're right, right? What you put in the field is typically part of a larger overall system. So unless you have all the data from the environment around it or the entire ecosystem, it becomes really complex. But we are seeing companies start to do that. For instance, we're speaking with a company that's doing uh, digital twins of data centers. And this goes back to your point of electricity consumption you know, CO2 emissions, right? So all of a sudden they're saying, okay, we're going to model a data center and we're going to start to figure out how that's going to affect the environment. So now all of a sudden, you know, if we want to reduce electricity consumption, we can sort of tweak some things to drive that, right? And that, you know, we've got, you know, too much air conditioning being used, which is generating too much CO2. How do we tweak that? You know, your point's a very good one. Typically it still is big assets, but we're starting to see companies use the digital twin concept to model and simulate broader environments.
0: Hmm. Ralph, we're talking a lot about the markets, but I'm imagining when you said at the outset, you know, you spend your time advising founders and and founders is kind of the focus and that's the fun part. What do you advise them about? Because some of it is these discussions that we're having here about, you know, what's actually happening in the field and how do you position yourself? What is the bulk of the mentoring work that goes into, I guess, the companies you have already chosen to invest in? What, What is the sort of guidance they do need?
1: you know, I think myself, like a lot of other people is go find something that you're really interested in and truly understand the problem, right? Truly understand the problem and immerse yourself in it. And then think about it from a broad context so that you could figure out what the best solution is. You know, and again, the example is, you know, just to bring it full circle, you know, we started a company that focused on carbon fiber parts, you know, We didn't really know much about carbon fiber at the time, but we said, this is going to be something really big in a couple of years. Let's go learn about it. And, you know, we took what I always say is, you know, you get a bunch of good, smart engineers that are curious and they can understand the complex problem and then articulate a solution. You're probably going to be okay. So those are the fundamental things. Go really understand the problem. Right. You don't even need a background on it. Right. If you're a good engineer, you'll go figure it out. So that's, that's what I always try to do. And, and, you know, trying this, it's really interesting. There's, there's no shortage of good ideas out there, right? You think about the investment thing, right? You see a lot of them. I see it. We see so many good ideas, the execution I've come to realize the execution is just as important or more important than the good idea. I always say to my guys, execute, keep your head down, go build a really strong business and eventually the good exit will come.
0: Good advice execution is the game so you got to understand what to execute and then just go do it don't be distracted good yeah, advice go
1: do it. keep your head down you yeah
0: know. i like it well ralph it's been great to cover some of these things with you thanks for uh, sharing your insight
1: thank you look forward to doing it again thank you so much
0: you have just listened to episode 71 of the augmented podcast with host Trunar unheim the topic was trends in the manufacturing software market. And our guest was Ralph Varilli, Managing Director of a Madison Park Group. In this conversation, we talked about his notion of Industry 5.0, emphasizing how manufacturing integrates with humans. My takeaway is that the manufacturing software market is thankfully finally rapidly evolving. Is there hope? that we can get the industry weaned off legacy technology with poor interoperability, horrible user interfaces and which as a result require hours and hours of training only not to work very well at all. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at augmentedpodcast.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you liked this episode, you might also like episode 59, Early Startups Meet Industry 4.0. Hopefully, you'll find something awesome in these or in other episodes. And if so, do let us know by messaging us. We would love to share your thoughts with other listeners. The Augmented Podcast is created in association with TULIP, the frontline operations platform that connects the people, machines, devices, and the systems used in a production or logistics process in a physical location. Tulip is democratizing technology and empowering those closest to operations to solve problems. Tulip is also hiring. You can find Tulip at tulip.co. To find us on social media is easy. We are Augmented Pod on LinkedIn and Twitter, and Augmented Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Augmented, industrial conversations
1: that matter. See you next time.